in loving memory of a dear son, George Edward Moore, who died 15th of May 1972, aged 25 years. Sadly missed by all his family. To us you are special, good and true. We will, ne- we will never be forgotten. We taught the world of you. So that was from his mother, father, and father. Yeah. So as you can see, there's only one headstone on the way. There's actually nine people buried here. You know, so this grave actually should be maintained. And I really can't figure out why it's not maintained. But this is where he's buried anyway. With nine on top of it. There is just one place where it it frequently comes back to me, and that is if I'm standing on a railway platform, particularly in London, on the tube, and I I always remember that one occasion when somebody ran to my right, and I'm always aware of that. I I live that every time I'm I'm on the railway. And it's it brings a slight it brings that memory, but it also brings a slight fear to me as well. Um, that there are others around, and also an impulse within me that there is within me and within all of us, in a sense, mm-hmm. a potential to to do that final risk-taking jump. Yeah. You know, there is that thing within us. He arrived at a London tube station with 10 minutes to spare before the arrival of the half past five train which would take him back to his lonely one-bedroom flat in Shepherd's Bush. As he looked at the masses of unseeing, unsmiling faces which passed him by, he suddenly felt completely alienated from the entire human race. How could anyone know him, he thought, when he did not know himself? And catching sight of his reflection in a passing mirror, he had an overwhelming desire to smash it into a million pieces. These were urgently trying to identify the man who suffered multiple injuries after falling beneath the train at the district line station. Working from conversations he had at the station, before he died, the police. When he was in his good moods, he would tell you, you are fabulous. You are the nicest thing on two legs. You have gorgeous hair. You have lovely eyes, everything. The A medical team from Fulham Hospital and firemen and London transport staff used hydraulic lifting equipment on the train to get him out. On the 17th of May 1972, a lonely unemployed Dubliner, George Moore, committed suicide by throwing himself under a tube train in London. A whole year went by before his family in Dublin found out he had died. The last rites were administered to him on the tracks by another man about the same age, Chris Collinson. He was about to be ordained a minister in the Church of England. George's sister Peggy never forgot him. This year, she wrote a short story reconstructing the last hour of his life as she imagined it. She and Chris Collinson are haunted by his memory. So, to the words of her story and her reactions on revisiting the scenes and the memories that she and Chris Collinson share, this is the story of Georgie. I think there were only, in fact, uh, ten words he said 
to you. Yes, because I've read this letter. There were only ten words, apparently, that were intelligible. Yeah. yeah. And I just sort of knelt down with him and... And you prayed. ...said some prayers, and I... I must have been ever so holy in those days. I'd got a copy of the Psalms with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had done. You just finished your training. Yes, I, yes, it's like... Yeah. <laughs> you know, like these people are very good. keen to wear a dog collar straight yeah, away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then as soon as you start wearing it, you realise it's a bit of a handicap. So I know, you stop yeah, wearing yeah. it. <laughs> I've come full circle now and couldn't get up, yeah. and so I wear as it. As he stood on the slow-moving, creaking escalator, he found himself staring at posters of full-lipped female bodies, all eagerly inviting the general public to sample whatever product they were promoting. Their tantalising smiles and eyes with unattainable promises seemed to be reaching out to torture his mind even further, and he was glad when he finally reached the platform at which his train would arrive. He looked at his watch and bit his lip in frustration, as the tiny hands of time told him the train was now four minutes late. I'd love to know exactly where, you know, and you'd never find out after all these years, because there's only two seats on that side, and he was going back to Hammersmith, so it would have had to have been somewhere around here. You know, it feels really strange, you know. Well, my life, in a sense, George's had come from from very. He was an Irishman. He was in a in a sense for him a foreign city, yeah. really, uh, but also in the most lonely city in the world, I imagine, mm-hmm. for many people. And um, I remember many times, you know, we used to um, we used to go down on a Sunday night, um, some of us from college, and go down to the West End. And do some soapbox ministry, and uh, we used to be <laughs> we used to preach. Well, I say we. I'll say we for now. But we used to preach in Trafalgar Square and uh, and Leicester Square. And then the police got very tight about this, and they had their rules got tighter and tighter. And slowly we were moved on. <laughs> it's nice to be moved on by the police. <laughs> and ended up down uh, Charing Cross. And I, I remember meeting all sorts of down and outs mm. down there. I mean, well, that's now sort of a bit of cardboard city down by the embankment. And uh, that was very much the case then. And meeting all sorts of people on the edge. And I was never one who could go on the soapbox. I could never, ever. I'd go down with them for a free ride. <laughs> but then I'd wander around. Yeah. And I'd talk to people as I'd be part of it, but I'd talk to people on the edge, so I'd sort of be on the on on listening, and yeah. trying to sort of understand what this was, what what people were hearing, what what were they actually hearing from these guys running on a, on this platform, what yeah. was what was this message, how how were people going to perceive this, yeah. and um, and try to be on the other side really. I found it very difficult to be actually on the soapbox, jamming it down people's throats. And I found actually some of it quite difficult to take. And it's certainly not a style of ministry I've ever uh, taken on board. But that was the world I was coming from. That was my mm. theological college. That was the principal's great thing, to send these men down to the real world in Trafalgar Square and preach the gospel. Mm. You know, chaps. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit, in those days, it was a bit public schoolish, mm. my, my theological college. It was the... Uh, the late 60s, early 70s, we wore gowns through the college day and, you know, we sat on uh, on, ta- on um, at tables with uh, no, no chairs, these long 
um, what do you know? Benches. benches yeah. Long benches, and it was all a bit like public school and uh, terribly yeah. nice chaps. <laughs> so that was very much the world I was coming from, and I wasn't at all happy in that world, I must mm. say. I was always wanting to get out and get down to London or do yeah. something different yeah. and get on with the real world, the real life, really, now. Yeah. The down and outs of London, a, you know, a sort of scene from Victorian London mm. <laughs> in the 1970s. Very Probably sad. still much the same. Mm. So we don't talk about it now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's um, I would say, you know, we all started to realise it when he was coming into teens because it was uh, silly things he caused fights over in the house. Like he'd watch what each of us got for dinner and he'd actually count how many peas we got and he'd find this to focus in on at dinner time. So dinner time at table was nearly always chaotic in our house. Once he sat down at the table with us because he had to have more than us. And if we, if one of us got more than him, that was hard for him to take. We, we started to realise then that he wasn't quite... We were all fairly easy going. We fought like normal families. You know, we killed each other. You know, but he didn't slot into that wave going on. You know... He either hated us all or he loved us all or he just didn't, we just didn't figure in his life at all, you know. And he had a terrible downer on Catholics, I can remember as he got older, because he felt Catholics in particular were the worst people you could put on the earth because they went to Mass every Sunday and they talked about their neighbours and they talked about what the person next to them was wearing and what this person looked like going up to the altar, you know. And he had a terrible downer on Catholics, you know. As he got older, he did. And then when he went to London, he came back even worse. He had an even worse view of us. We were the worst, biggest hypocrites on two legs. Catholics were, you know, that they could go to Mass on a Sunday and talk about their neighbours all week, never have a good word to say about anybody, so he said... You know, but I mean, that's basically an Irish person's way of going on. You know, if we talk about somebody, it's because they're interesting enough to talk about. You know, if we don't talk about them, then they're not. <laughs> it's the way I feel. If someone talks about you, then you're worth talking about. I can remember my mother always, always missed him. You know, she used to go to bed praying that he'd come home. And we always heard Georgie, Georgie this and Georgie that, you know. Now, while he, before he had left for London, he had actually caused a few problems in the house in the fact that he could t- turn extremely violent, you know. he There was one occasion where he gave me a pretty bad beating, you know. And uh, he never seemed to be in control of it when he did turn violent. You know, where if, if I lost my temper, if I feel I'm getting out of hand, I stop. I'll walk out of the room. I'll go somewhere, I'd rather bang my own head off a wall. But he would just lose control totally. And it was, I mean, the time he did lose control, it was over something very silly. We had a little small black and white television. And my mother always worked, you know. She always had to work, she you know, had no other choice. So she would work maybe for a few hours in the evening time in, I think it was cafe in town, making sandwiches or whatever. And she'd be home by 10 o'clock. But this particular night, uh, he was there and he was looking at boxing on this little black and white set we had. And 
I think Top of the Pops or something, some pop programme had just started and we all wanted to see it. So the advertisements came on and I said, turn it on to this station just while the adverts are on. And he told me not to, so I pressed it over. And he walked over and pressed it back again. So me not to be outdone, I walked over and I turned it back on. So I can't remember him hitting me, but I remember I landed over at the door on my back somewhere I hit my head off the door and it was my sister but two of my brothers were in the room at the time and he came over and if you can remember the beetle boots they had the pointy toe they, had, they were kind of like winkle pickers and he had a little heel on them and I remember he picked the boot up and he, he caught me in the side of the head but he was gone out of control this time because he kept on saying I told you to stop I told you not to do it but I grabbed a hold of his foot and I, I tried to bite his ankle. I know it was terrible. But I tried to bite his ankle to stop him kicking me. And the more I held on to his ankle, the more he, he was hitting me in the face. The boot kept coming back and hitting me in the face. So he kept saying to me, let go of my foot. He said, because I'm going to kill you, you know. Um, my sister was upset. My brother was upset. And he was saying to me, just let go of his foot. So I said, if I let go of his foot, he's going to kill me. But he reached over and he picked up an armchair. And he brought it down on my back. And that's what made me let go of his foot. I remember I was totally winded. And uh, just then the door, my mother knocked on the door. And I got up, as he heard a knock on the door, he knew it was my mother. And he brushed past me very quick and he walked up the stairs. But I walked out to the hall and we had a mirror in the hall and I caught sight of my face. And my face was literally, it was just like a pulp. I mean, it was my lips were bleeding, my nose was bleeding. And it looked like now I had been severely beaten. So my mother was met by the sight of me. I was like a banshee. I was screaming the place down with this blood all over my face, walking in the door. So she says to me, who did it? And everybody was hysterical. So she said, right, that's it. She said, I'm going to sort you out once and for all, she said, because if you could do that to your sister, she said, you do it to your wife. And really, you need help, you know. So she went out into the kitchen I don't know what time now, what she went out to the kitchen for. But he locked himself in the bathroom for the night. And we were living in a situation that we only had one bathroom and toilet t- together. So none of us could use the bathroom. We couldn't get in or out. My father was gone into work. My father was working nights most of the time. And uh, we were terrified going to bed. He never wouldn't come out of the bathroom. And he got out sometime during the night and disappeared. for. I think he was gone for two days. And my mother was frantic. But the following day went by and I didn't go to I couldn't go to work because my face was in such a state. Now, it was the only time he ever gave me a beating. And he came back the second day and he walked in. And I remember I was standing in the hall when he walked in and he had a box of milk tray for me. And he just looked at my face and he said, I'm sorry, Peg. I said, that doesn't matter, it's okay, you know. I said, leave. I mean, there was no point. I knew he was hurting. I knew because whenever he did something, he ate up at the guilt. You know, the guilt would totally kill him. Because he couldn't understand why. He couldn't understand why he felt that way, you know. You know, we all get angry. I I do understand that. We all get angry and we all lose our temper. But you see, when he lost his temper, he had no control over the temper. And you see, when he would walk away and cool down, he would try to think back on what he did. And it was only by walking. He knew he had done something. But I don't think he was really fully aware of what he had done until he walked into the house and saw my face. 
you know, and then he realised, and I knew he felt bad, but he, you know, he, like, he'd go, he went to bed for a week after that. You know, he wanted to sit and just drown in his thoughts. He felt that guilty about it, you know. I mean, I loved him. He was 17 when he first left home in search of his elusive dreams and desires to be as he wanted. A unique, solitary individual with no one to answer to for his thoughts and deeds. Arriving in London had pleased him to discover that nobody noticed or cared enough about him to pass him the time of day and it allowed him to act in whatever manner he chose at any given time. I felt at the time that's what I'm being ordained to to be part of, part of a world where people... Uh, feel desperate and and have uh, and feel so isolated and and lonely they and desolate that they have to take their own lives and I felt well that's in a sense it was a sort of affirmation that this this is the sort of world that I need I've got to be part of as a priest I'm not I'm not escaping from it I'm actually um, embracing it and mm-hmm. becoming part of it in a bigger way and I suppose in many ways that that sort of experience helped to mould my feeling about ministry in the future. I can't say I've always kept close to it. Sometimes mm. you do run away, but um, you you have to try to be in there where people mm. are um, as much as it hurts sometimes. Mm. I've certainly found that here in the last few years, that you certainly have to be very much where people are. They used to be in somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> and up in the sky, up in the clouds. But as long as you can try and be where people are yeah. and share their their pains and their joys... Yeah. And that was really a sort of a beginning, an affirmation. And I, I think it's it really helped me and influenced me. And I, I can recall it, and I can re- recall that the depth of feeling. Mm. And also I remember writing, saying the privilege of it. I mean, that's what it boils down to, mm. that it is a privilege, really. Yeah. It's a funny yeah. old thing, really, isn't it? <laughs> it's pretty awful and, well, and it's... the worst, but it's also a privilege to be there. George's taste in music. That's asking me something else. His taste in music was basically Del Channon was his idol years ago. And he would put them all, he had a cupboard under the stairs, and he had them all piled up in this cupboard, you know. His Del Channon records, which we cherished, were all on top. And maybe Buddy Holly was at the bottom, and this, you know. And he would take them out and play them. But somebody was ironing one day. Could have been me, I can't remember. <laughs> Somebody was iron, and the hot iron was put on top of these records. And when he went to take a record out, unfortunately, it was the whole Del Shannon collection which was wiped out because the iron went right through the first, I think it was something like 10 records it went through, and that totally freaked him out for about four days following that. He couldn't believe that you know the only records he really, really liked to listen to were gone. You know, it was, it was crazy at the time. We didn't see the, you know, we didn't see the harm in it. You know, but we didn't realise how he felt. He caught sight of a young, blonde, good-looking girl, and he smiled at her, and the look she shot in his direction convinced him that he must have looked like an escaped lunatic to provoke such a reaction in her. He wanted to get up and walk out of this crazy place where no one seemed to have a care for anyone but themselves. But his legs felt like lead, 
and his heavy heart was causing him difficulties with his breathing. Counting to ten in his mind, he took a deep breath, and closing his eyes, he allowed his mind to take him away from this God-forsaken place where no one cared whether he lived or died. Thing, the driver of that train almost took a heart attack, you know. He was in an awkward state after the driver had to be taken off the train. I think it was his fourth suicide, you know. I mean, you, get, you get a lot of people commit suicide on this underground, but it was his fourth, you know. But so I'd say he would have sat over there. I've never come here now in 20, 20 gone years. Yeah. Now it's 25 past four now. But he was here at half past five. And at half past five everyone's coming from work. Yeah. I would try to say, surely among all those people, you know, that he could have found somebody to talk to. You know, but he didn't. Since then, I've worked with the missions to seamen, and uh, we're, in a sense, you're very much with the the loners and the mm. people on the edge. Yeah. And I've worked um, with seafarers of all na- nationalities, and uh, sort of some of them in quite desperate need. And who knows? I mean, I wouldn't like to say, but I'm sure that this particular incident in my life, which has never, ever been repeated in its depth mm. um, since then, I've never had that sort of experience. I'm sure that was very influential for me and help me really sort of align with, with those who were on the edge and perhaps beyond the edge. Yeah. And I've always felt that. I've always had that sort of feeling in my ministry that I ought to be with those really on the edge rather than mm. with the sort of the group, the those who've arrived. Because yeah. they're all right. Yeah, they're all right. <laughs> They've got yeah. each other, but those on the edge often haven't. But I think people are on the edge, and I think our society is is proving that. I think there's people... A lot of people are becoming much poorer and are beginning to to feel pummeled, really, mm. by society. And whilst we're nice suburbia here, we do have our problems. Yeah. His mother would send him photographs of all the family and tell him how much they all missed him, and her letters would fill him with a mixture of feelings which only served to confuse his troubled mind even further. How could they miss him, he would think, when all he ever brought was misery and turmoil into their lives, and he convinced himself how much better off they would be without him. The negative, depressed person who lived inside him prompted him to sever all ties to his home and past life, and he stopped answering his mother's letters and returned them unopened, with the words, not known at this address. I looked you at my old diary, yeah. and I found out I kept diaries from 1972, mm. from that year, because I was ordained six yeah. weeks after that. Yes. And um, I, I worked out that I, I'd got a girlfriend then called Pam, and she lived mm. near West Kensington Station. But um, I apparently always went to Barons Court Station when I went to see her, but this mm. day I went to West Kensington. Jeez. And I'd never been to that one before. I decided just to sort of explore and go somewhere else. 
That's right. And I was on the way to a meeting in London, a rally in Central Hall, Westminster. And I presume I never got there. Because George jumped and then obviously there. You got down on the Yes, yes. And I do recall, I do remember doing that and I remember sort of trying to lie on the ground with him and then the difficulty of being with him because of the trying to get the train up. Yeah. And the people crowding round engineers trying to lift the train with these jacks. He, uh, he gave me a kiss goodbye. I was going to London to meet uh, Penfriend's parents. And the last time I saw him, he told me to go to London and be yourself, he said, because a, you're my sister, he said, you're beautiful and you have a smashing personality, he said, to knock them out, so just be yourself. And I remember he caught hold of me in the hallway of our house and he gave me a kiss on the lips and I got real embarrassed and I pushed him away. I said, get out of that, you know, and he says, oh, you're all right. You know, and that was the last time I saw him. I know I had about three letters to follow me. Here. There was ten of us in our family, Chris, and we fought through all our grown years. We fought like cats and dogs. You know, we pulled each other's hairs out. <laughs> we bit. We kicked. We did everything, which I consider that a normal family. My kids fight now. I consider that quite normal. We oh, all nice. survived oh, the trauma. Nice, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where we are all very close now, but where we fought, we would talk the next day. But when Georgie fought with us, it wasn't a it wasn't a violent way of fighting. He attacked us fairly, and that's hard to take, you know. Where if you're grown up and you can pull your sister's hair or smack your brother in the face, that's great, you know. Give him a kick, that's good. But if you have somebody who constantly attacks you fairly, mm. it's hard to take because you don't know how to respond to it. Right. You know, so he constantly attacked us all, you know, fairly when he was in his down moods. But then it was the way he felt about the world. You know, the world in general was just a horrible place, George, you know. And what was he like when he was in his good moods? Oh, he was lovely. He was so observant about people he spoke to. He would actually talk to somebody and he, if he liked you, he would say to you, you know, your hair looks nice. You have nice eyes. And he'd compliment you down to the ground. You look lovely mm-hmm. today, you know. And then the following day, when he returned, he would say, uh, you're really ugly, do you know that? Really? And it would be for nothing, you know. It was just because the world was ugly on the days that he turned. Sure. You know, so everybody was ugly around yeah. him. Yeah. He would actually be able to tell you what you had on you, almost down to your stockings. Gotcha. He was so observant on the days when he was good, you know. And he always felt he was right. You know, that was hard like, to get around. He was always right. You know, no matter what decision he made, it was always the right one. And if it was wrong, God would strike him down. But God never struck him down. You know, and we would often be bombarded with this, like I always say, Billy Graham, you know, this American. Oh, yeah, right. It, we always said he was like him because he would stand at the door spewing hail and brimstone at us all and saying, strike me down if I'm wrong. You see, I'm still standing five minutes later. So he knows that I'm right, you know. And we would just, <laughs> we just learned to switch off, you know. And it was it was very hard for my mother. We just kind of looked on him like he was odd. He was different to all of us, you know. We just knew there was something wrong with him, you know. And my mother would often say to him, like, you know, will you not go for There is something wrong with you. And then he would threaten us with, you know, the men in the white coats you're talking about. Right, my mother right. wouldn't put it in those words. Yeah. But he would say, well, the day would the men in the white coats come to this house, take me away, I'll take every one of you with me. Because I'll kill you all. You know, so... We'd laugh at him. We thought that was funny. We didn't even know what the men in white coats were. 
you know, we didn't know what madness was or anything like that. But looking back now on my life, I wish we could have helped him. My mother, he loved her to death. He would wait at the gate for the bus to come to help her off our shopping, right? And he'd say, "Are you all right, mother?" You know, and he was really nice to her. And then the following day, she was never mother; she'd be missus. And suddenly, she was a totally different. She was on a different planet to him, you know. And it was always missus when he turned into his funny moods. Never called her mother. It was always missus, you know. You think you know it all. And you know nothing, you know. And he'd start spouting out of him about all the badness in the world. And he was right. I mean, I genuinely believe that people who are schizophrenic or split personality believe that they're right. You know, we try to ignore him. And my mother used to say, just ignore him. He'll get over it, you know. She was constantly on her toes with him. Looking back on it now, she really had a hard life with him. You know, because she was always afraid to displease him. And she was afraid to say anything to him. She may have feared him, but she was afraid to to push him over the edge, you know. She was always afraid that it was her that might have been responsible for pushing him over the edge. It never was. I just think he always had it in him, you know. I think he just got to this crisis in his life that he didn't know who he was anymore. You know, and and he was lovely. You know, he was a really nice fella, he was. I can remember, uh, I can remember once my mother sent us to the shop. <laughs> Those days, they didn't have a whole lot of money. And she sent me for a half dozen eggs. And she said, now, hold these eggs coming home. This was in Churchtown. So he came with me and insisted on showing me how to juggle these eggs on the way back. Right? I know how to juggle eggs, he said. And I was terrified of my mother because... Not that I, I wasn't terrified of my mother. I was terrified of going home without these eggs because money was scarce. So he proceeded to juggle these eggs and of course the six of them smashed on the ground. And he legged us into the house to tell my mother I had done it. You know? And I remember no amount of of, of me trying to say I was innocent. You know, could, could cover for... You know, because she always wanted to believe him no matter what he said. You know? He thought, but, but yeah, it was funny. Looking now, back on my life, it was funny at the time that he got away with it, you know. He did it and I got the blame for it, you know. Some people can't forgive. Some people can go right through their lives and never forgive something, that you know, that happened in their childhood. But I think it's basically in your makeup to be forgiven. You know, I, I, can, I can be forgiving though anybody. He never hit my mother, but he made a lot of attempts to do it and never quite had the guts like he would stand this far away from her but I remember I walked out and I stood in front of her and he never touched me again after the hiding he gave me and he was shouting at my mother over my head and he kept saying to me get out of the way and I said no no you can hit me but you're not touching my mother you know because I I, I loved my mother most of us did we all loved, loved her but I can remember peeling these potatoes and crying while she was peeling peeling them she wasn't even answering them and he was giving her a load of abuse you know for nothing you know just 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 for nothing 
He was just calling her hypocrites and oh names like that really meant nothing. None of the things she was. She stood there crying, peeling the potatoes. She took it all. She took. She loved him. I mean, my mother literally idolised the ground he walked on. But then, I think they tell you if you have got a black sheep in the family, you'll always love him more. You know, anybody who gives you problems, I think if your children are very well adjusted and don't give you problems, you love them, you know. We we all have our kids. But I think if you have this one who causes you a lot of pain, you know, who makes you cry, there'll always be that little bit more that you'll try to help them, you know. And as a mother, I think mothers kind of really feel for their kids more so. I I don't think she could understand all his anger. You know, she was forever crying over him. Oh, and he knew. He knew what he did to her. He knew what he did to her. And when he would realise the next day what he had done to her, he would get very upset over it. And he couldn't even face her. You know? Now, he wrote me a few letters in the years before he died. I remember one letter he wrote to me and he says, Tell Mother I was asking for her. And tell her I'm sorry for all the things I say to her. But unfortunately, sometimes my mouth does not say what's in my heart. And I really am sorry for all the trouble I caused her. Please tell her this. But he couldn't write to her himself and tell her. Like he passed that message on via me. You know, and the funny thing was, in the two years before he died, I was the only one he wrote to. You know, so letters that were written to me are actually in my mother's coffin when she died because she wanted everything belonging to him. And they all went down in her coffin. You know? She actually died inside when she found out he was dead. You know, totally changed her whole outlook on life, my mother. Because I think the reason she was so upset when he died was because she had spent so long looking for him. She had spent like a year searching for him and praying to God and offering up novenas. And everyone who went to the Lord's, she sent a petition with him. And she would go to the church and she would light candles and say, please, God, keep him safe, you know. And when he finally turned up, like, a year after he was dead, she found that very hard to handle because she was always very good. She prayed an awful lot, you know. Not now, not overtly religious, but she was a very good woman. You know, she did a very good job, like, on us, bringing us up. That's why I feel she was a very good mother. You know, he was really her only cross in life I think we're all given a cross in life and I always believed he was her cross she kind of bore it well you know until he died he looked around at all the unsmiling miserable faces of people just like himself each with their own reasons for being angry at this unexpected failure of their train to turn up and he thought to himself, why not make them wait a little longer? As the green light on the edge of the tunnel wall heralded the late arrival, he stood up and crossing his arms over his chest, he said a silent goodbye to a crazy world in which he no longer belonged. For whatever reasons, known only to themselves, or perhaps unsure of his intentions, No one reached out to stop him as he walked to the edge of the platform. 
just as the hands of time had helped him decide his final moments, the unyielding hands of those too nervous to embrace a stranger helped to decide his final fate. As he jumped into the path of the oncoming train, each and every one suddenly found a reason for caring, but it was too late. He suddenly uh, ran as soon as the train entered the station. He suddenly darted forward and jumped. And then the, the driver sort of screeched on every brake available. But, of course, it wasn't enough. And so he pushed, pushed poor George along the track. And, um, and I rushed along to the, to the scene. And um, I immediately, I remember, or fairly soon, t- made myself known to the station manager or whoever and said, you know, I'm a trainee priest. I remember that was a phrase I, I used, and obviously yeah. quite a useful phrase, really. So I'd said I was an ordinand. He looked at me as if I was a bit peculiar. (laughs) And then he said, uh, and I said, I'd like to go down and talk with George and or you know, this man. And he said it's not possible because the 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 line's alive. So um, they turned the the power off, and I said, can I go down now? And he said, yes, you can. I went down and. Did he have a name? Yes, George. Where was he from? Shepherd's Bush. Did he have a family? A vague response to that question, as if he had no wish to speak of a life that was in the past. Two young men, each having chosen different paths in life, had formed a bond for eternity through the word of God. As one slipped away peacefully into unconsciousness from which he would never return, the other felt a peace within himself that had eluded him until this moment. He was right to have chosen his career in life and felt confident enough now to handle whatever challenge he might have to face as a minister for God. To all around, the young man who had jumped would always be just an unknown man, but he would always remember him as George from Shepherd's Bush. Chris Collinson is now a Church of England vicar in Cossie, a suburb of Norwich. Peggy Moore, whose married name is Anderson, is a mother of five and lives in Artane in Dublin. So it may be, it may sound odd and slightly, um, well, weird, but it, it's almost a, a sort of in our world. There's a lot of uh, sort of uh, desire to do different, desire to sort of, uh, you know, like drugs and that sort of thing. Particularly amongst young people, you've got to experience it. And there's that sort of feeling that perhaps, okay, George was schizophrenic, but there's also that feeling that um, you've got to go through that experience, you know, jump, let's see what it's going to be like. A dare, almost, an answer to a dare. But I always live with that and have done all all those years and, and will always live with that. And that's okay. I can handle it. But in sometimes in a, in a crowded station, I feel I feel it coming back. I still have a lot of dreams, you know. It's hard, really, for me to put my life into perspective. Just plods along every day, you know. We all have dreams that are unfulfilled. Um, I'm quite happy being a, you know, I'm quite happy having five children, but sometimes I, I think, you know, there would have been so much more I could do. I could have done, you know, for myself rather than just losing me 
you know I, I find in when you're married you kind of lose yourself a little bit you know this has given me a great boost now you know starting to write and starting to do something with myself because it's just me who's doing it nobody else is helping me to write you know I'm doing it off my own back Challenge that really committed suicide, you know. I think a hero, you know, Georgie would not have known that because Georgie's dead a lot longer. But Del Shannon was only dead, what, five years? Dead, and it's ironic to think someone's idol actually ended up the same way they did, you know. It's really ironic. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.